Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Simon Reynolds' book, Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ryan discuss GABA, the extreme form of techno that evolved in Holland, and Happy Hardcore, the populist reaction to Jungle's dominance of London. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Let it roll, or should I say techno roll? I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and I'm joined once again by Ryan Hartness to continue our discussion of Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture. And Ryan, this week, have we been steered into a cul-de-sac? Absolutely not, man. And I'm hoping I sent you a ton of music, starting with the old school stuff and then finishing with what's going on now. And I hope you recognize that it's full steam ahead and it's only getting crazier. (laughs) I did. I did. I listened to most of what you sent me. And yes, the cheese continues to be spread thick and generously. And it seems like people are dancing to it and enjoying this stuff. Yeah, I don't think we mentioned uh, this chapter's GABA and Happy Hardcore. I think they called the, it Marching into Madness was yes. the name of the chapter. Excellent. Yes, thank you for, for handling that. GABA, the Dutch, uh, the crazed Dutch hardcore variant, and then Happy Hardcore, which is sort of a reaction to Jungle in a way, moving away from Jungle. Yeah, it's a bit of an evolution, and there's there's other ingredients from other genres. It's really a pastiche, and we'll get into that a bit later. But I, I'm really excited to talk about all this because hardcore and happy hardcore were like a big part of my rave experience. We used to throw like a bunch of the raves in my part of Canada featuring both, and we brought in like key figures that probably should have been more in this chapter, like Lenny D, Scott Brown, DJ Promo. Uh, I hate to start half the podcast off with criticism because Simon Reynolds has written such a great book that touches on so much. But this chapter on GABA kind of gets wrapped up in the freak show that was the scene. And it concentrates more on the people who are into 180 BPM music and the psychology behind who could like that than a firm history of the music. So I'll try to fill in some of the gaps and and make it a little bit more uh, more history based. Yeah, much appreciated. And and it's no knock on Reynolds. When you do a book this broad and this comprehensive, you're always going to have weak spots. And he admits this is one of of the areas he could have covered more intensely. And definitely, I think he's much more interested in the intense, extreme aspects of GABA. And he just sort of throws happy hardcore in there as, oh, yeah, this was happening too at the same time, because it is the exact opposite of intense and extreme and has none of the hallmarks that he looks for in innovative music scenes. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's probably where it comes from. But to me, the innovation with Happy Hardcore is just in its complete surrender to to cheese and, and giving people what they want. And uh, and yeah, I guess we'll we'll go into that through that, and we'll we'll play some samples so people can kind of get get an idea of of just how hands in the air, outrageous and ridiculous it gets. <laughs> I mean. I had to dust off my pacifier and get my glow sticks out and 
everything. You know, if, if I could still grow pony t- pigtails, I would I would have had those on too. But you know, but let's get to GABA first. This is this is what he's focused on in this chapter. He calls it the ultra fast, super aggressive form of hardcore techno developed by the Dutch in the early nineties. For hipsters, GABA is a funkless, frenetic nightmare, the ultimate bastardization of techno. And of course, Reynolds immediately zeroes in on the scene. Once all the snobs and the critics start hating on something, Simon is like, oh, I better go check it out. Yeah, and this is also uh, we we covered this in past chapters. How uh, there's there's a number of people from the past scenes, like from Detroit, uh, all, all the guys like Richie Houghton and uh, Jeff Mills and stuff would go over to Europe and play their techno, and they were increasingly getting into basically writing uh, precursors for hardcore until they kind of sat back and and went, what the hell are we doing, and and, and kind of stopped dead in their tracks, reevaluated, went back to Detroit and and got more quote-unquote intelligent. So all through the history of dance music, you can see kind of people getting to the edge and then pulling back. And this is the story of the people that fell over the edge. <laughs> Absolutely. And of course, Joey Beltram uh, comes up again. His mentasm was an absolute uh, lodestar for this scene. Like this is that those crazy Belgian Hoover noises um, that he pioneered on mentasm are fundamental of the scene. And then there's a whole wave of tracks that, that Reynolds calls Belgium Hoover tracks by T99, Holy Noise, 80 Alm, and Mescalinum United uh, with We Have Arrived. That's the only track he names. And it was annoying to me because I found a lot of tracks by those groups, but I wasn't sure I was finding the ones with the Belgian Hoover sound. So that was a little frustrating. And also, I love the mover, the producer of We Have Arrived from Frankfurt's PCP label. His stuff, um, I don't yeah. know, this stuff hits a sweet spot for me because it's absolutely insane. It's just a total fascist noise nightmare. Um, very, very close cousin of heavy metal, which is dear to my heart. Yeah, the mover is Mark Acardapane, who's one of these guys that has used so many pseudonyms that he doesn't always get the credit he deserves for being one of the godfathers of hardcore. And that We Have Arrived track was the first release on Lenny D's Industrial Strength Records, which is uh, you go back and you listen to that, uh, the the early releases from that, and you do hear a lot of that kind of heavy metal, punk, ethos, hardcore before all of the rules kind of get settled down. Because We Have Arrived is, you know... uh, it's kind of like where old school hardcore was becoming jungle, but wasn't quite jungle yet. Uh, we have arrived was like really dark and grimy techno that wasn't quite hardcore as we knew it. But, you know, certain DJs were just looking for the hardest, darkest music they could find. And out of that melting pot of their sets, the blueprint for what can be considered hardcore emerged. And we have arrived is 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 one of those tracks that you kind of put a flag in and you say, OK, this is really where some of the rules are are starting to be made. And when does it split from hardcore into GABA? Around, yeah, around 91, 92, I'd say. And what are the distinctive traits that that distinguish GABA from hardcore? Like what, what... UK hardcore, I mean, not UK hardcore is a whole other thing, but the hardcore was was basically breakbeat. And then Dutch GABA took a lot of that. Instead of coming from that hardcore sound, they just took techno tracks and they were pitching them up and pitching them up. And then the producers were creating stuff to go with that sound. So 
they 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 were kind of together and they kind of weren't at the time you know it was it was a mix of all styles you'll have a lot of those djs that are playing everything because there wasn't enough really to just be a specialist uh but it was really that that belgian dutch four to the floor beat that distinguished from hardcore which was still breakbeat kind of leaning even with the dark elements into jungle and, and stuff yeah, and I think this is yet another reminder that the key to this stuff is listening to as many sets by DJs and radio sets, either live in clubs or on radios, I mean, as you can, because that gives you a much more accurate read of what people were actually dancing to than just listening to these tracks in order. Because like you say, the DJs were not just saying, I'm a Gabba DJ, I'm only playing tracks by these artists, because you would have run out of songs in 20 minutes, you know? So they 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 had a mix and a much more broader palette. Um, some of the sets I found, it was really interesting. Some of the things that would be thrown in there, you know, I'm, I'm getting versed enough in this to be like, Hey, Hey, that's house. What's that doing in this hardcore set? You know, but, um, people were dancing to a wide variety of stuff and DJs were, were mixing in a wide variety of stuff. Let's go ahead and hear our first track. And this, um, this is Euromasters. Where the fuck is Amsterdam? Tell us why you picked this one. I picked this one because it's uh, it, it's still early hardcore days, and uh, it was before all the rules were were locked in place, and where you had to have a certain kind of kick drum, and only you were only allowed to use certain instruments on the on the 909. This one here is one of the few hardcore tracks that has a crash cymbal just thrown in through the whole thing. It's got a little bit of a, it sounds almost like they got a live drummer in there, kind of hitting hitting some beats and stuff like that in the mix. So it's just a, a really raw tumble. Of, of sound so i thought it was a a good introduction to show people kind of what what hardcore and gabba sounded like before it really kind of uh got got that 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 more rigid sound that you would probably assign gabba although it is still pretty rigid sounded this is Euromasters. where the fuck is amsterdam Euromasters, where the fuck is Amsterdam? And that brings in a little bit of Dutch regionalism. This scene centered in Rotterdam, and Amsterdam was the big football rival, which led to some confusion, including people like Richie Houghton thinking that this was an anti-Semitic or fascist scene because they would use a lot of anti-Semitic slurs in their chants about the uh, Amsterdam Ajax team. What yeah, it's understandable because oh, it's you know if if it quacks like a duck, it's fair. I don't blame anybody for assuming it's a duck, you know. Like uh, <laughs> football, the football chants coming from the hooligans and stuff like that were never, uh, never you know, going to be mainstream. And uh, I'm sure they shook a lot of people who came over who didn't understand that by that point they had lost all meaning to the people chanting them. But you know, I'm not about to excuse what it was all about. There was definitely some anti-Semitism going on in the football chants and in the football scenes. Yeah, anytime you get a bunch of Northern European white guys with short haircuts listening to 
loud, violent, propulsive music and chanting like that. Yeah, definitely a red flag. And I, I don't, totally understand. But you did mention the Roland 909 kick drum, which I love. I love learning about the specific tools and techniques that they're using. And the Dutch gets, get a hold of the Roland 909. Of course, it's the sister of the Roland 808 and the Roland 707. Um, and it's associated with techno, but they like to totally distort that bass drum sound and then run it at crazy tempos. I mean, 180 is like the low end. 180 beats per minute is the low end. Sometimes they get up to 250. Even some tracks I came across were 300 beats per minute. Do people actually dance to that stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the great thing is with like 200 plus BPM, like your foot barely has to leave the floor in order for you to be moving along with it. So it's more of like a tremble than it is a dance, really, at that point. <laughs> yeah, I loved when uh, uh, Reynolds uh, compared it to a, a cross between uh, Morris dancing, which is a totally, I had to Google that, but that's a totally like traditional um, um English folk dance style, which is absolutely worth uh, a few minutes of looking at on YouTube. But he called it a cross between the punk pogo, the old Sid Vicious hop up and down dance, and Morris dancing, which is, I think, really does kind of get to the to, to, to the heart of what this scene is all about. It's a very uh, European expression. Yeah, if you're, if you're interested in taking a look at what the Gabbas were 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 doing as an official dance, Google the Hacken. That's H A K K E N. It's like a bit of a strange shuffle and, and not what I'm used to at hardcore raves. In Canada, people would like throw down, keep pace, head bang. It was practically a mosh, like a respectful love your neighbor type mosh. But uh, yeah, I, I, I saw one Vice video doing research for this that described the dancing perfectly, and that was uh, militaristic sky pounding and demonic tongue wagging with a dash of Wing Chun Kung Fu. <laughs> just a dash, just a sprinkle. I, I love it. Yeah. I love it. And and now that that song we played, Reynolds picks out as the first GABA anthem, and and DJ Paul Elstack was the producer behind that. But he doesn't stay true to the GABA cause and kind of becomes a pariah in the scene. Yeah, basically about three or four years after he helps birth GABA, he switches over and he starts making happy hardcore. And, uh, you know, he puts out a record, one side's GABA, and the other side is Life is Like a Dance, which is one of the cheesiest happy hardcore anthems out there. And it becomes a, a mainstream hit. It's played on the radio. So, you know... Um, I, I imagine you can imagine that the GABA community basically disowned him because he not only went happy hardcore, but he started charting with it. So I must have been seen as GABA's first and biggest sellout and hell hath no fury like a serotonin depleted GABA. So they 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 were not happy with him for quite a while. Yeah. And it's again this what you were talking about with Richie Houghton and others. This is something we see over and over again where these DJs and producers get involved in a style, start creating a style push it as far as they want to push it and then pull back. And, and, and Elstack said, you know, I noticed that there were fewer girls at the scene, that it was uh, less and less of a party vibe and more and more of this kind of young dudes frothing at the mouth raging. And I wanted to put the fun back into it. So, um, yeah, I just I find that phenomenon fascinating. I mean, it's it's something the Rolling Stones did. You know, they had this run of of hits from Satisfaction to 19th Nervous Breakdown to Have You Seen Your Mother Baby Stand in the Shadows, and then they pull back and their next song is a big R&B track. So it's something that's happened over and over again. Bob Dylan's Car Wreck. It's something that you see in all kinds of music, and and techno is no exception. And then. Um, 
it's basically kind of the Overton window for for music. Like uh, these people kind of stand in one position and they make music as extreme as they can handle it. But then the next person comes in and their middle is that most extreme point and they can keep on pushing it over that way. So it's just a continual like a new generation comes in and what was extreme before is no longer. And all through dance music history, you'll see all of the guys, all the house dudes were horrified by where techno started to go and all the techno dudes were horrified by what hardcore was becoming and even the hardcore and happy hardcore guys got horrified by what those became later on so you know it's just people being horrified by what's that what they've created and what it's become all the way down yeah and and reynolds then gets really into you know he reports on some of the scenes he went to and saw like the nightmare and arnheim uh holland's quote roughest rave r-u-f-f-e-s-t and and says it was like being inside a video game, that the effect is, you know, that the, the lights and the music, that the, the, the thing they were going for. And, and again, he's talking about these early 90s sensation junkies raised on Nintendo, Hellraiser, the Clive Barker movies, manga, the Japanese uh, comic books, and Freddy Krueger, uh, the, the Wes Craven movies from America. So at the time when he wrote this in the 90s, that was just the absolute cutting edge of decadent youth. But now that stuff is all kind of quaint, um, oldie stuff that my kids, for example, have no idea what most of those things are. Well, you know, it's in it. We're in an age where uh, the Kardashian sisters are wearing Slayer's shirt just because they like the aesthetic. So obviously, it's uh, things have changed. But, you know, <laughs> back then it was pretty extreme. And, uh, you know, the only comparison I can point to is it was like heavy metal. There's a similar engagement with satanic and militaristic aesthetics, similar fascination with horror movies. And I never really thought that much deeper about the meaning to any of this because, just you know, it's just an outsider misfit culture. So the idea of being at war with the larger mainstream culture, or at least trying to shock the mainstream culture, you know, that's just naturally ingrained in there. And, you know, I figure it's only natural that the same people who are horror buffs uh, were more likely to be GABA freaks. So the tie-ins just, just made sense to me. I never thought of it, you know, never delved into it the way that uh, Reynolds does. Yeah, and and he definitely does. And again, you know, you've got these band names like Search and Destroy, Annihilator, Strontium 9000. I thought that was pretty clever. Track names like Iron Man, Dominator, The End Zone, Dark Knight, The Battlegrounds compilation, some partnerships with Earache Records, which was the big grindcore label in England. And this isn't this is basically a little earlier um before uh the KLF does their partnership with Extreme Noise Terror right before they pull the plug on their whole gig. So there's, you know, the grindcore scene is is a thing, and and it's definitely cross pollinating with the techno scene here. And then again, he gets into the drug analysis, of course. And then you know, he's like, how does GABA come out of hardcore rave? And he talks once again about how if you overdo it on ecstasy, uh, it turns into basically amphetamine, and that this is essentially amphetamine music. That once it's depleted your serotonin, but it's still stimulating your dopamine, you turn into one of these frothing at the mouth GABA zombies. But let's let's hear our next track, and this is from the notorious trader Paul Elstack, "Rainbow in the Sky." Tell us why you picked this one. I mean, if you wanted to hear that, that first sample that we picked, uh, that was also uh, Paul Elstack under one of his pseudonyms. So that was that was Paul Elstack when he was in the GABA scene as a highly regarded GABA producer. And this is this is where he this was his second or third big, happy, hardcore hit. Uh, so, yeah, just imagine people who were fans of him before all of a sudden taking what he's given you now. As if you couldn't make GABA fans any angrier, Elstack found a way. This is Rainbow in the Sky from 1995. 
That was Paul Elstak's Rainbow in the Sky, his turn to happy hardcore. As if you couldn't, yeah, I already made the joke about making GABA fans angrier. <laughs> <laughs> so good, I wanted to come back to it. And one thing I found that was interesting, and watching the videos and reading Reynolds' accounts of this and reading some other accounts for magazines of the day, for a scene with this much anger expressed in the music, it wasn't really associated with violence that much. There were some drug overdoses that got him some bad publicity, but, but Reynolds really... Um, Kind of, he he talks it that says Gabba offers the pleasures of war without the consequences, the aura of mass rally and proto-fascistic brotherhood, a sexless euphoria that bypasses the adolescent's body to recover the prepubescent boy's fantasy world of explosions and pyromania. So it's just like a bunch of pretty young dudes regressing to childhood. And getting it all out of their system in such a way that they don't feel compelled to have big fist fights or, or you know, punch it up with the Amsterdam fans. Yeah, these days it's like you can go and pay people to be in a room with a baseball bat and like a bunch of old microwaves and TVs and destroy them. Uh, you know, I think just back in the day, this was uh, the perfect way to to go out and get all your anger and your frustrations out. And the people at the party weren't the enemy. You guys were the the unit. You guys had unity. And uh, so you, you weren't going to be picking fights with your friends. It was you against the world. So, you know, not only did you get you, did you get all of your frustration out and all of your anger and your anxiety and everything else like that, but you got to bond with everybody else doing the same thing. And no girls allowed, like songs like No Women Allowed by Sperminator, the delightfully named Sperminator, uh, just really says it all. I mean, if, if you want to have a scene with no girls, what better way to do it than, you know, get the boys uh hopped up to this extent and then just paint, you know, no girls allowed. This is the He-Man woman haters club. Well, I think maybe no women allowed was a bit of a parody track kind of pointing out how like kind of how much of a sausage fest it was kind of turning into. There were oh, female gathers. There was. Yeah. I mean, a lot of this stuff is 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 kind of tongue in cheek. But there, you know, you go and you take a look at the histories. There were a decent amount of GABA girls. They had their own uh, they had their own uniform. They had their own hairstyles and stuff. I don't doubt that they were probably maybe like five to 10 percent of the of the population uh, when it comes to the scene. But, you know, that. This was, you know, just in Holland, hardcore, at least after 2000, from what I witnessed in various other scenes across, you know, the world, ended up, you know, being pretty even, lots of women. But I, it also kind of came back and added more of a bouncy baseline to it that, that gave, gave you something to work with more than just a, a jackhammer. Yeah. And they also had to struggle with this um, reputation, bad reputation as, as, quote, kill your mother music or Nazi techno, and that a lot of the posters from raves at the time show they went out of their way to distance themselves from Nazis and racists, kind of like the old um, Belleville 3 putting, you know, no jits on their posters. They were trying to tell the Nazis, don't come to our parties. And it seemed like they had a little bit more success. You don't read about the scene becoming literally overrun uh, by Nazis, at least not in the 90s. Um, yeah, the, the Gabber and hardcore scene did what any proper scene that's serious about keeping fascists and racists out do. They made a bunch of anti-fascism 
messages uh, integral to their to every element of the scene. So you got you had records and shirts that had United Gabbers Against Racism, Racism and Fascism stamped on them. One of the hardcore labels records featured a bulldog destroying a swastika. There was uh, Gab artists out there making tracks like uh, Die Nazi Scum and Fuck the Nazis and Make a Stand. I mean, even the word Gabba is is Yiddish Dutch uh, for buddy, and it's one of the, and one of the biggest Gabba labels. Mokum means safe haven in Yiddish which is, you know, it comes from the history of what the Jews used to call the central boroughs of Amsterdam. So there, there's a whole kind of, you know, there, there's no denying the scene was largely white, but several of the key figures in the scene were black or mixed race. And, you know, the ecstasy worked at some point and everybody kind of realized that unity is the way to go. So they really pushed that, you know, there, there were pockets of race, racist, fascist, white power, hardcore fans, but the Gabba scene and hardcore dance scenes around the world in general have always been pretty successful at rooting them out and just tossing them from the scene whenever they show up. Yeah, it's and it goes back to like um, the two tone movement in England in the late seventies when punk rockers deliberately distanced themselves from the kind of racism that people like Eric Clapton and David Bowie had been flirting with, and the National Front, which was a big problem in England at that time, and still is. And of course, uh, the American hardcore version of that was the Dead Kennedys, Nazi punks, fuck off. And it's also interesting, Reynolds points out that a lot of these DJs had started out as hip hop DJs, and he actually says that GABA, in a way is the Dutch hip hop. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? I mean, it's hard for me to say because, I, you know, uh, hip hop is one of my uh, blind spots, so I don't really understand too much about it. But I guess it's just, uh, it, it's kind of like maybe how how the rare groove scenes and the uh, and some of the other British scenes had a natural natural tendency towards uh, non-racism because all the music that they loved was was black music. So maybe it kind of comes from that. Yeah, and I assume that these guys were into what was big in the 80s, which, of course, electro and, and hip-hop was, you know, one of the things going on at the same time as house and techno were starting up. He also makes a connection I thought was pretty interesting, which is to the uh, early 80s high-energy scene, which was totally associated with gay discos in San Francisco and London and New York at the peak of the AIDS epic epidemic. And he calls it the missing link between thrash metal and high energy, which is totally hilarious. Like, yeah, well, but it makes like, perfect sense. It does. And, and high energy morphed into what's called UK hard house now. And basically what happened, if you wanted to uh, – because all of every everything as far as this Dutch sound, this GABA sound and everything else, like GABA and, and straight four to the floor hardcore happened outside of the the main urban centers like London was 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 more jungle territory. But out in the north in Scotland, they really liked that hardcore techno that turned into bouncy techno, which turned into uh, GABA, basically. But uh, in London, if you go to trade, which was a big gay club at the time, UK Hard House basically was what high energy spawned. And it was going up to 140, 150 beats per minute. And all of the elements for, from that were kind of bouncing back and forth with what, what was coming out of Holland and what was kind of brewing up in Scotland. So you had basically outside of the main centers in Rotterdam, Scotland, this, this brew of, of different elements coming together, taking hardcore away from its roots in breakbeat hardcore and becoming more four to the floor, four to the floor, whatever the hell you'd call it now, happy hardcore GABA. Yeah, I would say it was more techno derived without, you know, the breakbeats 
if it doesn't have the breakbeats and you're just using drum machines, then to me, it's on the techno branch of the family. But let's take a quick break, hear from our sponsor, and then we'll take it to Scotland for the emergence of another weird twist on this scene. So yeah, so next Reynolds goes up to Scotland to see the GABA scene in Glasgow, I guess. He goes to Resurrection, which is a hilariously spelled R-E-Z-E-R-E-C-T-I-O-N, Resurrection. Um, and he calls it, quote, the peculiar Scottish cult of all things Dutch. And that, you know, that the, everybody's wearing t-shirts with Dutch labels. They're playing a ton of Dutch records. But he says that they're not so much into the kill your mother strain of GABA, GABA as they are into what he calls the fun core strain. Can you explain some of the difference there? I mean, it's just uh, you've got more of a bouncy, stompy kick sound to it, but you still have your pianos, you still have your Hoovers, and as I mentioned, the UK hard house added a donk to everything, and the donk came as well. So the donk is basically a kick with a bass right on it. So you have all these tracks that are coming out that don't seem to have bass lines because the bass is just integrated into the kick, and that creates that bouncy Scottish techno. Ah, I see. And again, it's consistent with the anti-syncopation trend of this. And when you listen to this stuff at first, it is just like four on the floor all the way down. But when you really listen closely, you can you can tell they're doing a lot of things to make it varied and interesting, despite having no syncopation. I, I totally found that fascinating. And there's also, I don't want to call it a morbid strain in the, in the Scottish stuff, but there were a number of e-overdoses that triggered a big backlash and a lot of songs about uh, the risk people were taking songs like Friday Night Can Kill You, I Died in My Teens, uh, a dance version of The Cutting Cruise, I Just Died in Your Arms Tonight, which <laughs> I loved. Talk about taking the cheesiest uh, crap and then making it even cheesier. Um, but with with an actual sort of undercurrent of morbidity and fear that gives it a certain amount of power. And there's also Another song I dug, No DS Allowed by the Rhythmic State, and DS stands for the Drug Squad, which totally infiltrated the scene after these overdoses. Um, so the Scots, you know, have this sort of paranoid view as they're raving of wondering who's the narc at the party. And you got to figure those parties were probably full of them because anybody on the outside looking in at one of these parties must think the whole thing is completely drug fueled, which, you know, again, I'm not going to deny that it wasn't heavily influenced or whatever else like that. But a lot of the key producers and, and DJs and stuff like that were actually, uh, you know, abstaining for, for, for big parts of their career. So it's kind of funny how there's, there's that assumption that, that unless you're really high, you're not going to like this music. Yeah. People love it when they're not high. It's just, they, they love getting high at the parties too. <laughs> exactly. Well put. And that's been something that's consistent all through the history of psychedelic music. People like Roy Wood of The Move, one of the great British psychedelic bands, never touched this stuff. So, you know, there are certain people that are just on these vibes without uh, chemical enhancement. And now we come to the turn to happy hardcore. Explain the differences between Happy Hardcore and Happy Gabba, like what were, what are they doing in the UK that was a little different than what they were doing in Holland? Oh, I mean, one thing is because of the split from hardcore to uh, to jungle, I mean, you have several years where, where Happy Hardcore is just 
just the old school hardcore breakbeat stuff with, and it never lets go of that happy, happy kind of vibe. And the book talks and mentions Slipmat as one of the guys who, you know, kept with the upbeat tunes instead of going full dark side. And, uh, you know, he, he really deserves the credit for sticking to, to the happy stuff when, when dark side takes over. And I'm, I'm enjoying dark side as a term a lot more as, as we're going along because dark side needs a word to describe kind of what happened. And so it's, I'm really enjoying using it now. So hats off to Simon Reynolds for that terminology. But anyway, Slipmat keeps the piano riffs and he keeps the chipmunk vocals and the positivity. And he releases several seminal records under the moniker SMD, which is Slipmat dub plates. And this is the London happy hardcore sound, which is acceptable to play within the city limits. And it's that happy hardcore sound still with breakbeats. But, you know, there's always uh, a version on the B side which is what you play when you're in Scotland to the north, which is the four to the floor, the four beat sound. So you're, you're, as time goes on, you know, the happy hardcore sound in London keeps that old school hardcore breakbeat sound around, around until 96. And you start seeing more stomping 4-4 kicks coming in on top of that or instead of that as time goes on and on until like 1998, where the scene kind of collapses because everything is this really thin kind of gruel of 4-4 beat. Like they've completely purged all the fun breakbeats and a lot of the other elements of it that's kind of become its own rigid rigid ridiculous form and it needs to be reborn as so often it's a cycle life comes in cycles some people don't think life comes in cycles but uh, it seems like music history does there are other uh, dj producers as well seduction and vibes uh, along with Slipmount, we're sticking with the quote celebratory upbeat tunes instead of going to the dark side and by the end of 1994 Reynolds says that happy hardcore and jungle were estranged cousins that Totally different scenes that you had separate labels for happy hardcore, labels like Night Force with a K, Impact, Remix, Hectic, Slammin', SMD that you mentioned, Asylum, Universal, a whole crew of DJ producers. You got Dougal, Brisk, Cyan Unknown, Force and Styles, Hickty, DJ Ham, Hickty. Oh, my bad, sorry. That's again the I don't know why my uh, autocorrect thinks Hickty is a, a more common word than Hixie, but anyway, DJ Ham, Ramos and Supreme. And then the venues, and this is kind of a tell. You've got the rhythm station in Aldershot, you've got the Die Hard in Leicester, you've got Club Kinetic in Stoke on Tent, uh, Trent, the famous world center of dance music, Stoke on Trent, and then the Labyrinth in East London. So it's clearly been pushed out away from the city center. And it's not even in the second city like Manchester that that you're hearing about these clubs it's out in the sticks yeah like this, all of this stuff happened in the corners of the scene like uh it took years for the 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 hardcore techno sound to infiltrate london like happy hardcore djs yeah they had that break mix for london because if you didn't play that you would you you would just clear the dance floor and amsterdam was more about techno while rotterdam was the one that put gabba on the map and in australia it was newcastle which is like just some town two hours north of sydney and that's the catalyst for their hardcore scene so it's once again it's the corners like things were already established what was going on and what was cool was already established in the main city center and you couldn't get away with doing anything kind of weird because it would clear the dance floor so they had to go out and create their own sub scenes outwards and let's go ahead and hear our next one and this is one from 2003 darren styles and breeze at hardcore till i die tell us why you picked this one 
I just wanted to kind of, you know, uh, when you were saying we need to listen to more sets as opposed to tracks to get more of a context, I figured fan, you, you listeners want to have a bit of context as to what happy hardcore sounded like when you were at a party with 5,000 other people uh, with an MC going and the whistles and everything else like that. I think this captures it perfectly. All right. So Tell I Die by Darren Styles and Breeze. That was Darren Styles and Breeze at Hardcore doing Until I Die in 2003, giving us a feel for what it's like to hear this stuff in context, in a club, in a DJ set, with the crazy sound effects going on and the crowd going crazy. And this scene had, like Jungle, which benefited from being ignored by the media, but all, Jungle was only ignored for like 18 months or something. And, and then by 1994 is clearly the new sound. And because of coming from a major city like London and being this, you know, allegedly or whatever, it is essentially the first Afro-British musical style to make a world impact. It gets a lot of love from the media. Happy Hardcore, on the other hand, is totally ignored until 1997, so it develops its own media, what he calls glossy mags, like Eternity, Dream, and To the Core, that distilled, that quote, distilled rave ideology down to its populist and democratic essence. And he says that they featured lots of positive reviews of clubs and raves, lots of photo spreads, and occasionally, occasionally regretfully might mention there was some trouble parking or something like that, but generally fitting the happy hardcore vibe. It's got a very gentle, critical um, aesthetic. Yeah, I mean, uh, what kind of happened later on in the scene, and this happened with the GABA scene too, is the GABA scene ended up collapsing because it got too mainstream. And I guess this is a story like you probably see a lot in a lot of music scenes is that once it kind of goes a bit mainstream and it swells up and then it starts getting a lot of criticism and ridicule and it kind of collapses under its own weight. And even the, 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 the main key to whether or not it's going to die completely or if it's going to hold on is whether or not the people at the core base managed to stick around. And with Happy Hardcore, I think it got to the point where it was so popular or popular enough and omnipresent enough that the the hatred from everybody and all the other rave and club scenes kind of piled on it to the point where you know the ridiculousness got became too much to to ignore and the mockery became too much and it just wasn't cool anymore and GABA collapsed under that weight of of all of a sudden being mocked and not being cool and I think Happy Hardcore kind of fell apart as well at the same time because they weren't really going anywhere interesting anymore it was turning into a bit of a cash grab uh, the music was was turning stale and and being commercialized in a lot of different ways uh, so people were just saying you know you listen to crap music and it was hard to argue because a lot of the the biggest stuff that was coming out was crap and uh, yeah it just kind of curled up into a ball for a couple of years and uh, and died it's kind of a reprise of what we saw in the 70s with the disco scene. By the time you're dancing to Disco Duck and Kiss uh, is busting moves on the dance floor, 
you know, it's time to check out and move on to the next thing. And he also gets into some sociology that I thought was kind of interesting that hard, happy hardcore kind of dominates uh, anywhere in England where the white rave audience predominates, i.e. not London, and that it's a result of an exodus of white ravers away from the jungle scene. He talked about how the personality of the scene changed from this open-armed e uh, bonhomie, um, butchering that word, but you know what I mean, like this this love and feels vibe to more of an arms-crossed b-boy scowl on the face kind of vibe. And the drugs changed. The jungle scene uh, switched to more of a, of a marijuana and champagne scene instead of ecstasy and the stuff. But the kids in the sticks were having that rave moment that they never got to have in 89 or whatever. And I, I, this was interesting. I wanted to get your take on it. He says that it's happy hardcore is dance music's equivalent to the rockabilly revival, nostalgia for something you didn't live through. And that like heavy metal, it fulfills a very basic and enduring need of provincial youth. Is that fair? Uh, well, I feel like this is where the book looks at everything a bit too much through the lens of history. Saying these kids were just chasing the original summer of love rave vibes, uh, like the happy hardcore scene was a proper underground subculture of its own. I don't think too many of them were thinking about what had happened before because what they were experiencing was tops to them as far as they were concerned. Like uh, that, that was the rave scene to them. Uh, what what had happened before that was just you know a couple of newspapers. It didn't have the, the the historical cachet for them to be looking back on it as some kind of something or other. Really, it was all just a, a continuation, and this is where it was now. So you know I don't know if 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 there was enough of a dip in what was going on for for nostalgia to be taking hold. So I'm I'm not sure. You know Simon Reynolds at the beginning says there's lots of takes and this is mine and you know you can have yours and that's fine. And normally normally I agree after thinking about things sometimes i'll disagree with him and i'll i'll think about it a bit and like, no no he's right i don't know about this one though yeah i don't see you know a big hallmark of the rockabilly revival and the same with the mod revival is it's about the costume and dressing up in this way and you know you can dress up in a 70s 50s where you model your greaser look on the fawns from happy days or you can dress up in an 80s 50s where you model yourself on brian seltzer the stray cats maybe add a tattoo and some sleeveless uh, uh leather jackets kind of thing but i don't get the feeling that like watching the videos of the dance clubs it's not like people were consciously dressing like the second summer of love in 1989. They weren't trying to look like Sean Ryder or something or going, I mean, there were certain elements that were sort of classic staples of rave fashion, but for the most part, they were just dressing like people of their time and place. So it didn't have that costume aspect, although it does have a bit of a uniform. I think with the heavy metal comparison, that, that that's kind of fair, that there's something going on that uh, these kids could recognize each other all across England and, and Northern Europe. As now, Apparently the Gabbas had like a complete uniform and everything else like that. In the UK, I don't, I'm, I'm not as sure in America, there was definitely a, a happy hardcore uniform, but you took it off after the rave. You didn't go to school wearing it. Well, unless you were one of like the five kids at the weird person lunch table anyway. Yeah, or like the receptionist at the office I worked from, who once rolled into into work straight from a rave <laughs> and didn't didn't have a very long career at the office. But you know uh, these things happen. But then he takes a turn, so he's he's kind of had enough with happy hardcore at that point. Anything that you want to add that he missed? 
Uh, no, I, I think that's pretty good. I think uh, we come back to hardcore when we start talking about the move to America. You know, as I said, Lenny D is one of those guys who's such a uh, he's he's kind of like the Paul Oakenfold of hard dance music. His name keeps on popping up. He actually produced uh, the KLF's What Time Is Love. So uh, he, and he was one of the guys that was giving a lot of the original breakbeats because he was a studio engineer and, and and worked on a lot of tracks and had access to a lot of tapes where he would get the original breakbeats and mm. get them to people in Europe for use. So he's a guy that pops up a lot and I definitely want to shout him out, but I think we cover him when we go to America, the rave. So we'll just leave it at that. All right. And that'll be next week. So now he takes it to sort of, um, this the scene the the descendants of GABA that remind me of like the famous you know Japanese uh, warrior who never surrendered after World War II that they find him on a tropical island 25 years later and he's still opening fire on anybody who looks like they might be an American or a Brit coming at him so there's this these um, scenes that still exist to this day more so I think in in the early 2000s when he was writing maybe than now but again I'm not up to the minute on this stuff but that he's got a section called Wargasm, and he says that not all GABA fans wanted to be happy, and they rejected this happy hardcore thing. And again, he mentions Newcastle, Australia, the first mention in our of Newcastle, Australia in our history of dance music. I don't even think Australian dance music came up through the whole Bruce, Brewster and Broughton era, did it? No, I, I feel like so many of these books are, are UK centric and then they'll touch a little bit on what happened in America. But Australia's uh, dance scene is completely left out, I think, because it's largely the, 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 the main opinion on it is that they kind of just take whatever like pieces of what's going on in the rest of the world and just just take them. There wasn't a whole lot of quote unquote innovation. But I mean, Nas and Bluton and what, what went on in Newcastle was definitely something special because it was kind of the birth of breakcore and and, and kind of uh, in, industrial noise and well, not industrial noise, because that's its own thing, but like industrial noise put, put into hardcore music, into terrorcore and and just some real. I mean, Nasenbluten is uh, German for nosebleed. So that tells you everything you need to know about this music. Yeah. And let's go ahead and hear our selection. This is Rabid by Nasenbluten. And tell us why you picked this one. Uh, you know, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it, it kind of shows you just how hard edged it is, but at the same time, you kind of see the appeal as well. So I wanted to pick a track that, 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 you know, wasn't soft, but it also, uh, wasn't just a 300 beat per minute, just drum roll of just, just agony. So th this here kind of gives you a, a little idea of maybe what, like an 18 year old living in rural Australia would hear that they say, yeah, I like this. All right. Nazenbluten, rabbit. was Nasenbluten, Rabbit. And despite the name, they're not German, they're Australian from Newcastle, Australia, of all 
places. And he's got some great quotes from Matt Newland, who's one of uh, the trio that makes up Nas and Bluton. And th- this guy is just unrepentant that, um, you know, of course Gava is monotonous, inhuman, and soulless. That's the whole point. And uh, he hates happy hardcore and everything about it. They deliberately record on a, quote, crap Amiga computer, which is a was a great computer for the early eight early 90s late 80s early 90s but you know if you're recording with that in the 2000s it's a deliberate choice has eight bits of memory so you cannot help everything you do with that is going to come out distorted and crappy sounding so it's a very conscious uh retro aesthetic that um you know i think it's these good these guys are like the the lo-fi crust punks of the hardcore scene. Uh, they they gleefully embrace the lo-fi, gritty, noisy, distorted. You know, uh, no no noise reduction at all. Everything hisses. Release it on a cassette tape. Here you go. Sound. Yeah, the, they they release a double EP called "One Hundred Percent No Soul Guaranteed." <laughs> so just a classic of taking ownership of the slurs people throw at you, and 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 turning them into marks of pride, um, you know, and and just gleefully celebrating the deaths of these uh, ecstasy casualties at raves and. Um, you know, definitely characters. I'm, I'm definitely interested in Nazem Bluton and, and going to continue to check them out just because they're so clear um, about what they're doing. They're, they're absolute aesthetic extremists. I mean, and, yeah, another- the music, and the music isn't bad either. Like a lot of this stuff is like borderline unlistenable and it's like kind of experimentally designed to to push it to a point where it's like physically unpleasant to listen to. But Nazem Bluton is for for someone that 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 is so hard and and just just intense it's still i'd listen to the i listened to the whole album without even thinking i threw it on in the background and i was really digging it so like definitely google them you won't find them on many streaming services obviously because they hate the man but uh, <laughs> look them up on youtube and check some of their stuff out if you're if you're if you if you want to see the more experimental end of things yeah, definitely worth worth checking out. I enjoyed him too. And then they get another character who's pretty fascinating. And this is a, a, a black British DJ, DJ Loft Groover, who um, he's reacting against what he calls, quote, too much niceness in the rave scene. And that he's a god. This is what Reynolds says, that, that DJ Loft Groover is treated like a god at clubs like the Shire Horse in St. Ives, Judgment Day in Newcastle, Steam in real North Wales. So again, uh, king among the yokels um if and i'm a yokel myself so i can say that but he's he's just big out in the sticks and he mixes in death metal tracks i thought was interesting although the group's reynolds sites morbid angel is a death metal band but stormtroopers of death and slayer are more what i would call speed or thrash metal but that that's just me being a geek um but it's just classic that metal and and this post gabba stuff have finally merged in the person of dj loft groover yeah, and just as far as where this sits, like everything sits under the umbrella of hardcore, but it's an awkward Thanksgiving dinner for sure because you've got like the happy hardcore kids who are more likely to be down for whatever. They're sitting next to the hardcore and gabber kids who usually hate the happy hardcore music, but you know maybe not the happy hardcore kids at least. And then there's the breakcore experimental noise terrorcore camp, which is the Nas and Blutons and Loft Groovers, and they're left field from the left field, and they don't like anybody. They dress in black. Once again, they're sitting at that, that lunch 
table on the other side of the of of the of the lunchroom at school, and uh, yeah, it's the most extreme stuff. Uh, in Canada, it was the Endymion guys who used to were like the main promoter for this style of music, and I went to a couple of their nights, and oh boy, you leave with hearing loss, and and just like shook to your core. <laughs> Sounds like fun, and 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 also again this crossover with earache that you know there's uh, he mentions earache did a comp of of this kind of dance music, but also released Frankenstein by Signs of Chaos of with O V spelled O V, um, so th- this metal crossover thing is explicit, and groups like ultraviolent psychodrama, which they describe as 10,000 Nagasaki's going off in your head, referencing the atomic bomb attack on Japan in World War II. Yeah, I used to actually have a, uh, my, I had a hardcore side project, a live PA, and it was uh, hardcore GABA with an electric guitar, and we were called Slammer Virus, and uh, we used to do a whole pro wrestling thing in the middle, and we'd smash the computers at the end of the set, and it was, uh, it was a lot of fun until we broke up in a, in a, in a, in a ridiculous explosion of, of, of women problems. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there's a Yoko Ono for every band, isn't there? It's, uh... (laughs) Well, I blame John Lennon for this one, honestly. Uh, uh, fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. And then he wraps it up with this little section he calls Slave to the Rave. And and quoting the Inferno Brothers track, Slaves to the Rave, which he says sums up Gabba's weird fusion of will to power and impotence. So, I don't know, Reynolds is kind of like, he's fascinated by this scene because it checks off so many of his boxes of being made by outcasts, of being despised by the critics. But then ultimately at the end, he he can't resist getting a knock on it as well because it really does keep the rage and fury in the club. It, it, it It's a great way for kids to spill their frustrations and anger, and there's no like political movement coming out of this. Well, one thing that I think, you know, from the time where he wrote it, uh, things were on a dip. And creatively, I think it seemed like maybe a bit of a dead end musically. But in the 2000s and beyond, it's, you know, hardcore, happy, hardcore, GABA, like everything, the break core as well. Uh, you know, it, it's like jungle will never die because jungle is just like fat, you know, 170 beat per minute breakbeat music. And so long as there's drum and bass, you'll have drum and bass music. And hardcore is basically just anything above 170. And we're not going to stop making music that fast. And people are going to be creative about it and find new ways to do it. And uh, one of the reasons why I sent you, you know, half stuff from, you know, 1990 to 95, so you can hear what the, the birth of it was, I sent you some stuff of what was going on just after 2000. And then like 2020, I sent you uh, DJ Sharpnell from Japan, showing you the weird stuff that he was doing. And it, you just to, just to show you that this music has evolved, and it's still finding weird and crazy ways to just be sonically exciting and strange and compelling for you know anybody feeling young enough to dance to music that's 200 beats per minute yeah that japanese stuff freaked my daughter out on the way home from uh, uh day camp yesterday so did, did she uh, like the vr suit it was two little anime girls dancing to it though <laughs> we were in the car so i couldn't show her the video so oh, um just 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 the audio she was definitely uh, 
she wasn't just giving it the outraged thumbs down. She was intrigued by it. Like it, it definitely had the what the heck is this crap you listen to, you know, which is an occupational hazard of doing the show. So my kids are always shocked and appalled by whatever I'm dredging up from music history. But that's it for this week in our in our venture into GABA and happy hardcore. And next week we'll be back to talk about America the Rave, U.S. rave culture, 1990 to 1997. This is when America finally starts to catch up and accept the music that actually in many ways started in America. So Oh, say can you E <laughs> <laughs> All right. For Ryan Harkness, I'm Nate Wilcox, and we've been discussing Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture. Follow the Let It Roll Podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Next week, Nate and Ryan will be back to discuss Rave's growth in America from 1990 to 1997. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.